0: Hi. This is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page.
1: Hi everybody. Hi Dr. Nick.
0: Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr Nick here again. Welcome everybody to this special Easter edition of Radiotherapy. And this morning, it's such a chilly Melbourne all morning, what better way to continue your Sunday, keep us company here on Radiotherapy. I'm delighted to be joined once again in the studio by our regular panellist, Miss Diagnosis, Prudence, dear Dr Sonia. Dr Sonia, it's lovely to see you again. Um, You've got something special for us today, haven't you? I've
2: got a great guest coming on this morning. I'm really looking forward to talking to Associate Professor Sally Nick. Nathan, about some wonderful research she's doing out of the University of New South Wales.
0: And this has a particular relevance for you, doesn't it, from work that you've done in the past?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So she's she's done some work into the impact of residential drug treatment programs on young people. I have a little bit of experience working in those treatment programs, and it was quite a, a research desert a few years ago when I was working <laughs> there. So I'm looking forward to those findings and talking to her more about that.
0: As we get some oasis in the research desert, looking forward to that. Thank you, Dr. To- <laughs> (laughs) On Prudence, I know how you spend your Easter's. You just spend your time rummaging through the journals, don't you?
3: Well, sometimes. My eye was caught the other day by yet another study um, uh, examining the the Mediterranean diet. And (sighs) I just thought... Oh, you know, let's have a, a bit of a revisit. I think, you know, there's there's some interesting findings, but I think it also just raises the sort of question to have a, a bit of a think about diet, perhaps especially on a holiday weekend while we're all enjoying, hopefully, variety of foods. But how many of you project. are really on a Mediterranean diet? What is it? Let's find out.
0: Yeah, really good question. Yes, I'll look forward to that. Michael Mosley has been in town, of course, telling us all what we should be eating, but I'd rather hear it from you, Dr. From me, from
3: the horse's <laughs> mouth
0: or something. just. Uh, Diagnosis, um, I hear you've been um, at the comedy festival recently.
4: That's right. I had the pleasure of seeing Jordan Gray last night, who was... Absolutely fantastic. That's she... a coincidence.
0: I was there too. Oh, were you, Dr. Nick? <laughs> oh,
4: I think I saw you in the audience. <laughs> she was incredible. She's not only an incredibly funny woman, but she's also an incredible piano player. And let's just say that she can play the piano with more than just her hands. So, definitely worth seeing.
0: <laughs> oh, I yes. yes. She's a phenomenal performer, isn't she? And um, so, there are, I, think, I think there are some. St- Some tickets still available. So, if anyone wants to go and see a brilliant show at the Comedy Festival, Jordan Gray. You've been to that one, Prudence? No, No, I haven't. But but you'll be lining up, aren't you? I'll
3: be lining
5: up. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: Oh, yes, it's the dog park shout out because uh, here at Triple we love all the animals, our bucks, waxolotls, but Prudence, you, you,
3: you don't, don't see many of them in them the, in the park, dog park.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so puppy dog cities. Uh, oh, and t- today today I-, I had a lovely time in the park yesterday. We met the absolutely delightful. How can you resist a six-month-old golden retriever? Oh,
2: you definitely oh. can't resist
0: that. <laughs> so Murphy was in the park and, and Murphy, oh my goodness, what a beautiful dog Murphy was. Um, and um, Murphy was there with um, parents. Do you call them parents? What do, you, what do you call the owners of these things?
4: I, I think we call them dog owners, Dr Nick. I, I don't think we need parents? to go quite so far as calling them fur babies and parents.
0: <laughs> anyway, we, we, we had the absolute delightful Will and Talia. Uh, Will, came from Watford uh, it's, it's amazing how in the UK I don't, don't know if you Australians know about this how much you can pick where someone comes from from their accents in the oh, UK so. Yeah, so, it was, so as soon as I had a chat with Will I said yeah well you come from somewhere close to London don't you and, uh, he came from Watford and when I was in the UK Watford, the Watford Gat service station was the dividing line between England and something called the North <laughs> that's right. That <laughs> was back in the 80s. I don't know if that's still the case now. It, it possibly still is. Um, all right. Well, I think with misdiagnosis all queued up, it's time we had some news.
5: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how
0: diagnosis, what have you got for us?
5: Well,
4: while Prudence was rummaging through her drawer of journal articles to bring us something uh, tasty for our brains, I was rummaging through the back of my pantry and came across some (laughs) old Easter eggs. So, Dr Nick, I have a question for you. I opened these Easter eggs. Now, they had been there a while, I confess. And some of them had that sort of whitish, you know, maybe mould, maybe something on the
0: surface of them. What is that, Dr. Mick? Whoa. Now, I'm no chocolate scientist, but I'm guessing it's oxidation.
4: Oxidation. Good try. It is, it is a, it's a form of oxidation. So my question, I looked at this chocolate <laughs> and I thought... Is it safe to eat? Can ah. I still eat this with this sort of substance on the surface? And what is this substance and why
2: does this some of be my chocolate This the most it?
0: important segment on radio this entire 12 months. I think
2: we can all go home after this. Yes, yes. So the, <laughs> and check I, your chocolates. I
0: hope people are listening very carefully because misdiagnosis. And I'm going to tell you, can you eat the chocolate that's got white stuff on the surface? Yes.
4: <laughs> now, that white stuff on the surface, it's known as bloom. So essentially what it is when you make the chocolate you get all you know your cocoa beans and you and you sort of dry them and you crush them and then they actually ferment so that's where we get all the good antioxidants from so you ferment the beans and then you have to melt them down and you add all your cocoa solids and cocoa butters and bits and pieces. Now the process of doing all of this is called tempering when you're sort of melting the chocolate down it's to get it into a beautiful smooth sort of substance so that it doesn't feel gritty on the tongue. Now the cheaper chocolates they have a different tempering process. So what that is on the surface, the bloom is either a combination, it's either a fat bloom or a sugar bloom, depending on the substance Mm -hmm. itself. Most of the time, I think it's normally a fat bloom on the surface, (laughs) where the chocolate has melted slightly and then solidified again. And those beautiful crystal structures that we get that feel so delicious on our tongue turn into this sort of slightly crusty, crystal-y thing on the surface.
0: So first you tell us it's safe to eat. Now you tell us we're going to be munching on Fat bloom.
4: That's true. Yes, it is safe to eat as long as you're happy to eat eat a fat bloom. Now, so so, Doctor Nick, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, you know, it's okay to eat this chocolate, but what about my cheese in the fridge that also had some spots on it? I haven't been cooking very much recently, and I had a look at that and I thought, oh gosh, is is this safe to eat? And you know, some people think, oh, just cut it off. Some people think, don't. So, so, what do you think, Doctor Nick? Mold on foods. Good to go?
0: Cut I it off I, or throw it out? I know the answer to this one, so I'm going to turf it to Dr. Sonia. But, uh, uh,
2: I am. Um, I'm a big fan. Now, I don't know if I'm exposing myself here. Big <laughs> fan of cutting off the mold and saving the rest of the food. Now, I think I'm going to find out how many years I have
4: left to live if I keep doing that. Is that right? <laughs> well, so the good news is, is there's a pretty simple rule of thumb that you can apply to foods to know whether you should turf them or whether it's okay to eat them, and it comes down to two things the moisture content of the food itself and how porous the food is. So, so,
0: it, so do I need a hygrometer and a porousometer to know whether or not it's safe to cut off the mould?
4: Uh, you probably just need your brain and your eyes, I think. <laughs> but if you did, you know, maybe, maybe it would help a little bit. So something like bread, very porous. The hyphae, which is the chains of the mould, can grow through the different porous layers. Much more likely that all of the bread has bits of hyphae, bits of mould in it. Something like cheese, it's a a much more dense structure, not a lot of moisture. It's easy just to cut it off. So they say a centimetre, cut off a centimetre for cheese, any sort of hard substances, even salami, you can cut off a centimetre of it. It should be good to eat. Strawberries, you know, watermelon, soup that's sat at the back of the fridge, those hyphae are going to go all the way through that moisture, probably unlikely to be super safe to eat. So anything with a high moisture content or super porous, you can turf. Luckily, on both accounts, chocolate has both a low moisture content and a a low density, uh, sorry, a what did I say? Low moisture content and low porousness. <laughs> so regardless of whether that was mould or whether it is a fat bloom, you're good to go.
0: So it sounds as though Dr Sonia has a little life left in her yet. Is I that right? I was going
2: to say, it sounds like that little Parmesan in the back of my fridge that's getting smaller and smaller. Every time I cut a centimetre off to keep eating it, play on.
4: Keep going. <laughs> See how far you can get.
0: <laughs> oh, you I feel it.
2: very vindicated.
0: Thank you, Miss Diagnosis. The most important news of this Always year, if not for this century, Eastern news, eat your chocolate. But fat bloom or no fat bloom, just get stuck <laughs> in and join. Enjoy it. Coming up shortly, we'll be talking about the Mediterranean diet. Yes, You've heard all about yes, it. Yes. What exactly is it? What's all the fuss about? Prudence, dear. Mm. We'll bring it we'll be bringing you the good oil right Ooh. after this.
5: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organization in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
3: Prudence, dear. Yes. By the way, tell us all about the Mediterranean diet. Well, I'm, I'm sure most people have heard something of the Mediterranean diet, and, you know, it's been promoted for quite a while. In fact, I was just looking through some things, and it was kind of a... Coined by a physiologist called Ansel Keys oh. um, back in 1952 in one of their publications, um, and and Keys had travelled around Italy and Spain and so on and done a sort of you know a number of what was described in the conversation as quasi experimental surveys of mm-hmm. b- blood pressure and blood and cholesterol and mm-hmm. so on. So looking at cardiovascular health and risk factors, um, and then sort of subsequently over over a number of years. You know, the whole idea of a Mediterranean diet that, that it seemed that people who lived in these regions had sort of better or lower sort of issues around morbidity and mortality from cardiovascular sort of risk factors. So, and in fact, the Harvard School of Public Health actually created the Mediterranean Diet Pyramid, which is Ooh. a very nice little. Graphic, you can go and Google that Mediterranean diet pyramid, and it's uh, it kind of gives you quite a good idea about what the Mediterranean diet is. And so how long should, ago did they create that? That was in the 90s, actually. So, so it's been this around the, a
0: long time. So, is this the food pyramid that we're all familiar with? Is that the one that the Harvard it, created? Uh,
3: it, well, there's one specifically though for the Mediterranean diet, so okay. it has starts off at the bottom with you know what you should base most of your, your diet on. So, we'll we'll may as well talk about that as yes, well, it, while we're at it. So, yes, what is the Mediterranean diet supposed to be? About it all the time and I'd love to know really what yeah. is in a mediterranean diet. So well it's it's based on the traditional i think that's important traditional eating patterns of people from those mediterranean countries in particular Greece Italy Spain and so on but i think you know it's also worth bearing in mind how much sort of cuisines vary from one nation to another and from one sort of cultural sort of uh, sort of backgrounds and so you know there's not really you know, one sort of nation's um, uh, diet sort of being better than any others necessarily. But um, it's based on – it's based the, – the very bottom of the pyramid is all about vegetables, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Vegetables, fruit, and of course, you know, I'm a key player in the whole thing extra virgin olive oil. Oh, the <laughs> olive oil gets in there. And um, I believe as well, partly in, in the development of all these sort of ideas around Mediterranean diet, um, you know, the olive oil industry has also had a heavily sort of invested interest in it. So always bear that in mind, perhaps. Um, a lot yeah, of- I, do, I, do, I do worry about that one a little bit because I remember back in the 80s
0: when we're told that red wine was good for you from a cardiovascular perspective yeah. and it turned out most of that research was pretty dodgy and a lot of it had been... Well, rather heavily sponsored or promoted or there's
3: always vested interests in the there
0: wine you know. industry yep so yeah, there we go okay but is. we
3: but we love our e so we, yeah. we want <laughs> and uh, so yes so look, we build it so look, an awful lot of what is you know what is proposed in the in the um, mediterranean diet is really a largely kind of vegetarian basis and especially around um, you know whole grains bread cereals lots of legumes so we're looking at beans and uh, pulses and uh, oh whatever lentils kidney beans all those sorts of things you can make a lot of variety of sort of meals around this and it's only when we move up the pyramid yeah, but so, before we move up the pyramid yes.
0: i want to throw to our doctors here who are experts on fats of general why would one particular fat in something like EVU be good when we're told all the time other fats are bad. So, question without notice, doctors, take it away. Why would EVU potentially be a good thing to have where other fats are not? Hmm. I, think it's,
2: I think it's probably about fat metabolism. And I think some of the fats are really good for brain health and other fats go straight to the wrong places. But I think something that I, when you're talking about the food pyramid, the food pyramid I grew up with had a very strong carbohydrate base. And I think that's really fallen out of favor. Do you remember that misdiagnosis when we were young? There were, you know, six to seven servings of bread every day. Was day. I'm looking pyramid? at these
0: incredibly young people and they're <laughs> saying when we were young, I think what yesterday? Oh. What, what are we talking I about? I remember
4: here? the um, my box of Special K had a food pyramid, which, funnily enough, had Special <laughs> K as the basis of the. But you're right; it was all That's carbohydrates. That's quite a coincidence. With <laughs> really? yeah. oh, Kellogg's, I have no idea why. But I think I think those studies were actually sponsored by Kellogg's, and so they did put the cereals very, you know, as in cereals in the cornflakes, not cereals as in oats and barley, but um, at the bottom of the pyramid. And it did have a very carbohydrate-heavy base. I think um, the, the Mediterranean diet, the other thing they have at the base, I just had a, a quick Google in between, was that the the base of their pyramid was physical activity and sharing meals. Yes, yes, oh. yes. I
3: did skip that little bit. I was going to circle back round to that oh. one, but that still is part very much. Well,
4: it's great because it means I don't have to answer the question about fats. I think it's to do with polyunsaturated <laughs> and saturated, yeah, right. but I
0: can't remember all my so, Yes, so my, my memory from medical student days, you've got the saturated, polyunsaturated, and EVU is a monosaturated fat, which for some reason is terrific for your good cholesterol, your HDLs mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. Anyway, we'll move aside here. Carry on up the pyramid for us. Oh, the, the pyramid.
3: So once we get past all the fruit and veg and all that lovely stuff, we do get to fish and seafood. So And I guess that, again, is something that you know introduces kind of what we might call good fats those ones that are particularly useful for brain function and uh, general body health so but already at that point though they're sort of saying you know um fish and seafood this is interesting they're saying well maybe you know up to five times five serves a week which i think you know from a that sort of health perspective of like what the 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 diet actually consists of sounds good but I'm also a bit worried about what contaminants and things people pick up from eating too much seafood these days Um, yeah a bit of a worry kind of mercury and all that sort of stuff
2: yeah I think something that really factors into diets these days as well is everyone's really interested in how sustainable their diet is for our planet and when you were mentioning you know eating together at a table community eating sharing I wonder if sustainability factors into that pyramid at all as well
3: Um, um Yes, well, I think, I'm not sure it does in that respect, because what we're looking at here, as I say, I mean, there's still a recommendation to eat a fair bit of fish and seafood. And then we go above that, we get to poultry, poultry and eggs, which from a, you know, it's very intensive farming sort of, uh, set of set of businesses involved in that. But they're also saying, you know, moderate um, sort of intakes, really maybe between daily and weekly for those. And then if we go up to the top, we find the red meats, which is really, a, you know, one or, once or twice a week type things that they're suggesting. So it, um, it probably doesn't suit most people unless they're going, f- I think, fairly kind of vegetarian in their approach. And that's, that's also, I mean, it's not what you kind of expect, actually, when you go to some Mediterranean countries. The meat components can be quite substantial. But I think you're talking about maybe eating out in some of these countries
4: because I found when I was on exchange in Italy, most of what we ate was was that food pyramid. It was vegetables. We would have meat once a week. We'd have seafood when it was... You know, not super frequently. Probably not as much as that pyramid. But what was sort of seasonal and available. I think most of the time when we think about Mediterranean diet, a lot of us think about traveling to these countries. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go out and you have this beautiful, you know, beef ragu or, or a piece of lamb. We go to Florence and you have that Florentine steak. But that's a that is an exception in a Mediterranean diet because people don't eat out very yeah, much. They okay. eat communally.
3: And that's yeah. Look, I think that's a very good point. And that's also probably where we got the red wine from. It's like oh, there's always red. Wine wine, go to a Greek restaurant, you know, red wine, lots of lamb or something. And that's the you know, we, we get that idea that that's what the diet consists of.
0: So, Prince, we've um, talked about what the diet is. Now, yeah. t- tell me with this some new research about well, why
3: it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, look, um, there's been a lot of studies, haven't there? So this, um, the paper I came across is not... You know, like Pure Research, it is a review. It's a, you know, a review of literature and a um, network analysis. So the, they've applied. so a, a large group of mainly Canadians and a few others from uh, the sort of North America and South America um, have, have looked at um, studies. And it's, it's what they've done, I suppose, is similar to a type of Cochrane type thing. You know, it's a, a review of a lot of data. Um, What did they kind of come up with? Well, I guess the kind of particularly interesting things were um, they found about 40 studies that were looking at um, cardiovascular risk factors. So people were at risk of cardiovascular disease and then looking at the impacts of, of dietary interventions. So they found something like 40 studies that were worth an analysing in terms of the outcomes. And that covered, I mean, the big advantage of doing these sorts of reviews is that the, the sample population, the number of participants is huge, 35,000. 35,000 people who were sort of variously studied um, over periods of time of several years and follow-ups. Um, and what they were able to show, I think, which is, is significant and I quite liked as well, was that first of one of the things they looked at was all-cause mortality. So, again, I think some of the research, for example, might look at a specific aspect of diet or a specific sort of outcome, health outcome, but not look at other bits. So, you know, it might be, well, yes, that's good for your heart, but it might actually be quite bad for something else. So I think that's important. Um, And they also looked at certain cardiovascular sort of outcomes in terms of both you know, fatal outcomes and also non-fatal heart attacks. And what they really found, even compared to low-fat diets, so they compared the Mediterranean diet with low-fat diets, they found studies that did that, as well as just other types of diets and other interventions. And the the Mediterranean diet definitely came out in terms of all-cause mortality. It came out better in terms of, yeah, you know, heart attack type issues and also stroke. So, and that, and they they sort of claim that the the evidence is is moderate compared to actually, an awful lot of these studies. The evidence for you know the benefit is usually quite weak. So this they've they've kind of come up with what looks like a fairly convincing. Um, and and do you know,
0: were they able to differentiate between the effects of the diet and the bit that misdiagnosis oh, mentioned yeah. earlier, the activity and other aspects that are good for cardiovascular and all-cause mortality? Because uh, it's so hard, isn't it, to tease these imp- factors out?
3: Absolutely. And I mean, uh, when you're looking at 40 different studies, the protocols are quite varied and it's probably difficult to do that. They did look at other interventions, but you know, there could be co-interventions going on in a lot of these studies as well, like smoking cessation for example or exercise or dietary counseling and so on so it's a bit more difficult to separate that out but i think you've got a real point there about you know that that yes in many countries the cultural sort of Emphasis is on socialisation, is on eating. You know, meal times are times when people get together. They put their phones down, they turn the TV off or whatever, and they have a conversation and they get you know they pass the time of day together um, as a regular you know both family and you know extended family sort of events. Also. Um, Yes, and other things, you know, exercise, so other types of social interactions, which I think really must play in to people's overall health, for sure.
4: And, of course, that beautiful pasajata after a meal. (laughs) Usually we go for a bit of a stroll. But I I was wondering, Prudence, it may... I mean, this is a a literature review, so it Mm. it may not have been mentioned in there. A lot of these studies are often only done in male populations Mm -hmm. and it totally exclude females from the study due to, you know things like we're just too unpredictable and, you know, we have hormones and babies and things like that. I was wondering whether this research, whether it said anything about gender. I didn't really
3: find any gender separation
0: So this particular meta-analysis didn't, but there actually was a recent study published on women and Mediterranean Mm. diet um, Mm. that did show the same benefits for women, and it was a study specifically in women and Mediterranean diet that showed a reduction in cardiovascular risk, stroke and mortality uh, the benefits are up to around about 25%. Um, so, there has been a recent publication specifically on that topic. So. Oh, well,
4: thank you for that, Doctor. We just, we just want to be well, included be just... as 50% of the population.
0: You know. <laughs> That's a very important point because we've talked about that on the show before about how women tend to get left out of a lot of this science. Um, it, if we really want our listeners to stay healthy, of course, one of the things that I get a little bit tired of is people talking about this diet or that diet and uh, yeah. the Mediterranean diet. It's a lovely, healthy diet, but it's really basic stuff, isn't it? Let's yeah. let's eat yeah. plenty of fruit and vegetables and grains and fibres totally. and that sort of thing. Add in a bit of protein. Yeah. If most of it's fish, that's probably pretty good. Yeah. Dr. Sonia wants to add in an egg or two, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah, because I wonder as well as a GP, th- these very um, specific comparisons of these different diets, misdiagnosis, we're looking at a couple of them we've never heard of, the Orokin diet Diet and the Pitakin diet. And I always wonder what this means practically for the patient in mm. front of me if, if I'm telling them, you know, low fat is not as good as Mediterranean and, and those sorts of things. I always wonder how to translate it to the patient, mm. um, sort of distill it down to, to uh, lifestyle changes or habit forming changes.
3: Sure. Look, I think and I, that is particularly important because you know, when we started this conversation, it was like, what is the Mediterranean diet? You know, I think many people will have different interpretations. So if you if you don't spell it out, they might not be doing the right thing. And the second thing is, is that there is this assumption then that one diet, which has some cultural background, is better than any other and it's some ideal. And I think we've got to be very careful about that because people who may have perfectly good diets and also as part of their cultural heritage and everything, we then turn them off of that and put them onto something that actually isn't, like, in their normal way, everyday life. So... It's and dangerous. we're also assuming access to fresh fruit and vegetables and fresh fish,
4: which just isn't the case for a lot of people as well. Mm. And a lot of people are trying to make, you know, do the best they can with a lower income, with a lower budget for food. And sometimes, you know, I, I know that if I'm I'm working a lot, I'd try my best, but sometimes, you know, food goes bad in the fridge. And if you've spent a lot of money on these expensive fruit and vegetables, especially at the yeah. moment with cost of living going up, it can feel really prohibitive. So I, I think that point's really valid that we need to work with mm. everybody's individual circumstances and their individual cultural heritage mm. to make to help them understand a diet that's going to work for them for
3: them and yes and it's and is ultimately sustainable both for our environment and you know for our economies as well
0: a misdiagnosis you mentioned the after-dinner passaggiata the gentle yeah. stroll but remember that uh, brisk walking is better than a gentle stroll study out of the UK taking data from over 30 million people in the UK showed just 11 minutes of brisk walking every day uh, had a significant Significant uh, reduction in terms of mortality and serious illness and chronic disease five, ten years down the track. Yeah. So the passage that, that's a, that's is. That's a
4: brisk walk to the shop to pick up the feta you forgot. You don't do the <laughs> brisk walk after dinner. That's the <laughs> passage out of time.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that's that great. we did mention very briefly at the start, but the biggest risk reduction for your cardiovascular risk and every aspect of health for those 10 or 11% of adults out there who still smoke, please. Quit smoking. Simplest, quickest, easiest, and it'll boost your bank accounts as well.
5: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: Dr. Sonia. We've got a special guest coming on in just a second, but just tell me, why Why has this piqued your interest?
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our guest today. She's a public health researcher who's published some interesting findings into the role of residential drug treatment programs for young people. Dr Nick, have you heard of residential drug treatment programs before?
0: I certainly have, and a number of my patients in St Kilda have unfortunately required that kind of help. can be fantastic, not necessarily easy to get into.
2: And do you think they work for your patients? Do they change their lives? Well that's
0: a really great question and I'm hoping that you're going to tell me the answer because I don't know the answer to that one.
2: Yeah I I worked in a hospital withdrawal unit which is slightly different than a, a drug treatment program and that was both adults and young people and it was such a formative experience for me. I saw patients there every day for two weeks after a medically supported withdrawal procedure from drugs, and those experiences basically made me realise I wanted to become a GP. But something that stuck with me at the time was the lack of research demonstrating their sort of tangible benefit in these patients' lives, and I think addiction medicine has been a little bit neglected in terms of interest in the past, but thankfully it sounds like that's changing. And today I'm delighted to introduce one of the agents of this change. We have Associate Professor Sally Nathan. Associate Professor Nathan is a public health social scientist from the New University of New South Wales. Her work aims to improve health equity and opportunities for young people and communities, and she does this through active partnerships with non-government organisations, including the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector. New knowledge through her research is used to improve health equity through advocacy, health promotion, and changes to policy and service delivery. Her commitment to equity is also reflected in her role in convening the Masters of Health public health program. Dr Nathan, welcome to Radiotherapy. It's so lovely to have you here on air for our Easter Sunday show.
1: Thank you, Sonia and Nick. It's wonderful to be here and I'd like to say that I'm coming from Bidjigal land and just to acknowledge traditional custodians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
2: Wonderful, thank you for that. Let's let's get back to basics for our listeners. Yep. Not everyone's had uh, experiences in these sorts of areas, and what is a residential alcohol and drug treatment program, and how does it work?
1: So residential treatment programs are often for people at the kind of pointy end where really their drug and alcohol problems have become quite, you know, entrenched. They're leading to many problems in their lives. And for young people, that can include include things like unstable housing, you know, potentially involvement with the criminal justice system, sometimes to actually get money to pay for the drugs. So what's really unique about it is, number one, it provides a safe space. It provides housing so for young people they can stay for up to 30 days, some up to 90 days. It's holistic. So the idea is it's not just about saying what do we do about drug and alcohol use. So as you were saying, Sonia, about your experience of a withdrawal program, it's really important to obviously address the drug and alcohol issue. But for young people in particular, there's a whole lot of things that are underlying that drug and alcohol use. So, you know, housing, family um, trauma. So we need to take that you know whole of life approach, help them to develop good life skills and connections. So it's really that holistic nature the safe space it provides and just giving them that time to actually address that sort of complex array of issues that underlie drug and alcohol use.
2: Yeah, I think it's getting at one of my favorite phrases, which is the social determinants of health. Yep. And <laughs>
1: I'm with you on that one. <laughs>
2: what I enjoyed so much or learned so much from in my withdrawal, uh, withdrawal program experience as a doctor was how different it was to my other sort of medically focused rotations. Mm. You talked about holistic care. When I was there, I was the only doctor in the entire um, treatment program, and everyone else mm. were of different disciplines and really had that multidisciplinary approach yeah. To the patient. But we know that substance use disorders affect people of all ages. Why are these programs particularly important for young people and adolescents?
1: I think they're important for for everyone. I think residential programs have a place at all life stages. But I think what's really valuable at this early stage is you're intervening early and you're hopefully stopping them on a pathway that does become more entrenched. So the findings I'm going to share with you today are about how we can actually shift a young person's trajectory when they're looking like they're heading down a path of ongoing drug and alcohol use, ongoing involvement in crime, you know, family dislocation, a whole lot of things. But they do have a role, I think, for everyone. There's some really good adult programs as well. And again, I think for adults, like for young people, it gives them this, Space away from all of their challenges to kind of reflect, get good support, counselling, you know, etc. So they do have a role at all life stages, but for me, seeing their impact for young people is just so, you know, it's really encouraging and it, it, it shows us we need to invest more.
2: Absolutely. It's such a formative time, isn't it, adolescence? And I remember that the place I worked in had both adults and teenagers, and there's such a different focus around relationship Mm. building um, with teenagers, which I think is so important. But um, what were the main findings of your study? Tell us what you found.
1: Well, look, we've done a number of different analyses of what's called administrative data. So we've used data that the program collects, and we've connected it to to data from hospitals, emergency, mortality, justice. So we've been able to follow up Young people um, over a much longer period of time than other studies, and we've been able to create a comparison group. So, one of the challenges of this area of research is the ethics. So, you can't randomly allocate young people to get treatment or not. So, it's hard to have kind of good, robust studies. So, some of the findings have included the most recent study, which showed that these young people, from age like like ten or eleven, that were involved in the criminal justice system, up to like ten offences or you know mm-hmm. convictions by age sixteen. That the program had a massive impact on their criminal convictions post-treatment so on average four fewer at five years post compared to those who didn't attend so that's a pretty significant shift in in the direction they were going in and we've also seen alongside that reductions in hospitalizations post-treatment so you know we're really you know at seen change in diverse areas of their lives, and we're able to really compare it to kids who didn't come in a really robust study. So we're pretty excited that it's showing just the incredible value of these high-intensity and and really sort of holistic programs.
2: That is incredible, and I think just the design of a study or multiple studies like that is um, so challenging and so rigorous, as you mentioned. I think one of the reasons I found your findings so compelling and so important at this time is because the age of criminal responsibility in Australia is 10 years old, which is shockingly low compared to other countries. The global average is 14. And this means that in this country, despite knowing that children's brains are developing, police have the power to arrest and imprison a child year three or year four at primary school misdiagnosis you've got some thoughts so
4: excuse me ignorance with this so so criminal responsibility so does that mean that they they are responsible for their actions what does that actually mean age of criminal responsibility i haven't heard that term before i think
2: it means they can be they can be held responsible for a criminal charge so you can arrest yeah. and imprison a child
1: they'll go into a juvenile facility but yes it's an age of criminal responsibility where a magistrate judge can say you you kind of knew what you were doing and you're you have to take responsibility for it so it is really concerning because you know not only age of 10 but also some young people may have some learning or cognitive disability and we know that people with learning and cognitive disability are overrepresented in the uh, in the justice system
2: Yeah, really, really a bit of a shame for our country But the other thing we were looking at, um, or I was looking at with your studies We know that the ongoing legacy of colonisation means that Mm -hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children or adolescents Make up the vast majority of imprisoned young people in this country But you've done some really unique work uh, centering Aboriginal experiences and perspectives in these pathways Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so, look, in addition to to looking at this administrative, what we call linked big data, um, obviously in this study... Aboriginal young people are overrepresented, so they make up about 30% of our big sample. So we've done some qualitative work and we've also done some survey work specifically focused on Aboriginal young people. And what's really important is that it's great that we've got programs like the Ted Noss Palm Program, which is a therapeutic community, but we don't have enough programs for Aboriginal young people that are run by Aboriginal orgs and have a lot of Aboriginal staff. So whilst we've seen good effects of this program, we need to invest more because we We know that Aboriginal people are over-policed, that young Aboriginal people are ending up in the justice system much more than other young people. And we really need to look at what we can do about that. If we can actually get them into programs like this, where they have particularly Aboriginal elders, Aboriginal staff that can be mentors, we can see real shifts for them. And and for us as a team, and I work with the wonderful Professor Megan Williams, who's Wiradjuri, and an Aboriginal advisory group, and we looked at the, the journey of these young people with the interviews we did as a healing journey. So one drug and alcohol treatment program isn't necessarily going to reverse the massive impact of colonisation and intergenerational trauma, but it's a start on a pathway to healing. But we do need to really partner with those Aboriginal community orgs and Aboriginal elders so that young people from Aboriginal backgrounds can, can be with other people from their community that support them, and we're just not doing enough in that space.
2: Yeah, when I was looking at some of your work and um, some of the themes that came out were about connection, relationships, connection to country and where you're from, um, that holistic uh, focus of healing. I was thinking how much mainstream services can learn from Aboriginal advisory committees and improving mainstream services by following some of these Aboriginal models.
1: Yeah, Sonia, you speak my language, absolutely, Dr. Sonia. So one of the things that I think was really clear here was one of the things that came from Aboriginal young people themselves was the critical role of family in their healing journey and community. And then we've also heard that from non-Aboriginal kids. So if we make a service really safe for Aboriginal young people and holistic, it's going to work for everyone. So I think there is a lot to learn about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of thinking about health, but it's also like things like collective healing. So you can't just take a young person and fix up their issues or support them and then put them back into a family of origin or a community where there are serious, you know, uh, you know, critical issues going on no attention to the social determinants we also have to look at healing in the family healing in the community and addressing those broader things which led to the young person probably getting alcohol and drug issues in the first place
0: it's coming up to 10 to 11 here on 3 triple r with me dr nick we've got dr sonia misdiagnosis and Prudence steer in the studio and absolutely delighted to be talking on the phone to professor sally nathan I, i think you're in new south wales is that right sally
1: I am indeed, and it's very windy here with planes flying overhead, so I'm
0: glad <laughs> well, you hearing them. <laughs> sad, sadly, Easter is no more clement here in Victoria. But, uh, no. One of the questions, as a GP who's seen people going through this for well over 30 years now, the nature of substance use has changed a lot in my time. Mm. What, what's your experience about that and the new challenges, perhaps, with the changes in the array of substances that people are exposed to?
1: Yeah, look, I think there is just a lot more out there, which means, you know, trying to mitigate harm is really challenging, which is why I'm a big sort of supporter of things like pill testing because we have to minimise harm. We know young people are going to try things and we want to minimise harm, but there are just so many substances, so many places young people can, and people generally can access them, including on the dark web. So we really need to be um, knowing what's out there, which is why pill testing has a role in kind of identifying new substances but we also need to be aware that young people are often poly drug using so they're using more than one substance at a time so that also increases risk Um, and drugs like methamphetamine you know once a young person is addicted they're really really challenging for them to sort of Detox. Well, I mean, it's not really a detox, but to come off them, keeping them safe and mentally stable. So, and we don't really have good withdrawal services for methamphetamines, for example.
0: I'm going to be really, so, so, I'm going to be really selfish, asking another question. Sorry, Dr. Sonia. But, um, but uh, one of the other things which I've struggled with a lot with uh, parents and so on, they, they, drugs are just ubiquitous now. there wasn't the case yeah. when I was a lad. You had to work quite hard to find drugs. Now, every single party young people go to, the drugs are available Mm. and of course parents get terribly scared that their child's going to have a little puff on the joint sometime at a party and suddenly they're going to be a drug addict on the street by a a month's time no and Mm. so what is the what's the advice to parents about how they should manage their young people's exposure to drugs because just telling them don't do it obviously is not a great idea um but is this an inevitable gateway through to horrible stuff just talk us through that from a parent perspective
1: Yeah, and look, I've been a parent of two teenage daughters, so um, I can relate to parents' concern. Look, I think the most critical thing to remember is most young people that, that, that try drugs don't go on to have a drug and alcohol problem. Um, So a lot of young people will experiment. Adolescence is a time of risk-taking, you know, things that we all worry about, driving cars too fast, you know, trying drugs and alcohol. You can't stop that and it's often peer pressure is involved. For me and for what I've read and and colleagues of mine who work in this arena, you've got to have good communication with your kids, make sure they feel safe, that they can talk to you about what's going on, but also this idea of harm minimisation. Like, I've talked to my daughters and their friends and said to them, I can't stop you taking something. But if you're going to, get it tested, get it pill tested, try a little. Like, you've got to be realistic that kids are going to try stuff. And not all kids, but quite a lot of young people will. So how do you minimise that harm? Like, I know that most of my friends' daughter, you know, my, my daughter's friends would probably ring me if something went wrong. So you want to know that your kids understand the risks. They know how to minimise the harm. They know that they call an ambulance or call you if a friend or someone they know has taken something and it's gone, you know, it's gone badly so they just need to know what to do when things do go wrong because the reality is for some of them something may go wrong with a friend who's taken something so I think we, we don't want to normalise it but at the same time we can't stick our head in the sand and say it's not going to happen so that, that idea of minimising harm and being a parent that your kids feel like they can explore things with. Hey, mum, you know, a friend of mine's taken MDMA. What do you know about MDMA? So educate yourself. Go on to, to websites of really good drug and alcohol educators and find out the kinds of messages that they're telling you to give your kids. So there's a lot of resources out there. You know, find out everything you can and just be there to talk to your kids.
0: And the one thing I'd add to that is uh, um, try and encourage them if there's a group to have at least one person who's not taking the yep. stuff, so that there is someone who's straight who's not going to be affected by a substance. If something goes horribly wrong, Dr. Sonia, back mm. to you. Yes,
2: yeah, something Thanks, I Dr. think Nate. something I think I've really learned is a as a GP that I uh, wonder would help me one day if I became a parent is the importance of curiosity and um, asking people, yep. you know, young people or any age, why they take what they take. And the answers are really varied and different. So um, something that I learned when I was in the, the withdrawal unit was the reasons I had never heard this before, but one of the reasons one of uh, the homeless patients took uh, ice was so she could stay awake all night and then sleep during the day because um, sleeping at night was unsafe. And the only reason she used ice was to keep herself awake, moving around all night and safe. And I think having that curiosity, whether it's a child, an adolescent, a person, having that curiosity, because if you take drugs away you've got to replace something and and there's a reason that people are using the things they are and I think yeah having curiosity and figuring out what to what to put back in is something that I learned.
1: Yeah, and I think, Dr. Sonia, what you've also highlighted is, again, that underlying reason why someone might end up not just experimenting and, and recreationally using something but becoming, you know, have become, having a really serious drug problem is often there's something underlying that. So some of our earlier work looked at the use of methamphetamine amongst young girls, and we found that cumulative trauma was a major predictor of whether they were a methamphetamine user. So, again, unless we... You know, young girls who might end up with a meth problem is because, basically, it helps to kind of remove themselves from the trauma. Trauma. So, we need to actually address the trauma. So, again, going back to that underlying social determinants, what are the things that sit behind that problematic drug use?
4: So, uh, it's a fascinating conversation. So, I, I'm wondering with these programs, so you've got young people that come into them, how long do the programs last and what kind of follow up do they get after the programs? Because I assume, as you've said, you know, it, there's a huge number of reasons why people might be using these substances and it's going to take more than, you know, a weekend, a couple of weeks to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. So so how what's the follow-up and how long do the programs last?
1: Look, they can be up to 90 days, but our research has shown that about 30 days is kind of a bit of a... A, a sweet spot in terms of having some impact. So, you know, some young people do stay the full time. Noffs follows them up and has ongoing contact for up to three years, dependent on the young person's needs. If they're doing well, they don't, they don't need to stay in contact with them. And many other programs run by other non-governments also, you know, attempt to keep in contact with them. They also um, connect them with local community services. But it is a real risk time when young people leave the program. There's often some relapse and we actually haven't invested enough in what's called continuing care. So how do we ensure that even when they leave the program, they can readily access support? And if a young person's going back to a rural or remote area, that becomes even more challenging. So I guess telehealth has a role, but local services and local you know, local organisations are also really critical as part of that. Because it's not just a, you know, as you said, Dr Sonia, it's not just a, you know, go in once and tickety-boo, everything's going great. It's, it's about, you know, keeping support for them until they really feel that they've got their lives on track and we do see young people come back more than once so the other thing is that the program is open to kids who do relapse because we know it is you know substance use is a relapsing condition that those young people are welcomed back and supported when they do you know when they do not you know stay on the right track for a while and things go off the rails
2: you briefly mentioned that it's Ted Knoffs and that's the Ted Knoffs Foundation Program for Adolescent Life Management. Is that is that yeah. the
1: foundation? Hmm. Yeah, that's right. They've got one in Sydney and one in Canberra. They've also they're, they're they're looking to have one in Queensland. There's also a range of services offered by other NGOs like Mission Australia. There's some Aboriginal orgs that run um, some resi treatment. So there's in every state and territory there's a a peak organ peak body for all the non government Treatment services and they usually have a directory. So you could just, you know, if someone wanted to search it, they could put in New South Wales Alcohol and Other Drug Agency or Alcohol and Other Drugs peak organisation and that would give them a directory of all the different um, organisations and they could search by residential. So a lot of non-government organisations are funded by government to deliver these services. Um, There are some government run ones, but it's predominantly in in, in New South Wales in particular, the non-government sector that runs the, the therapeutic community and residential services.
0: And Sally, just finally, just very quickly, for people who are really anxious about this and maybe have been through a couple of cycles, do you know what the very long term data suggest about outcomes for young people who get caught in this? If we go 10, 20, 30 years down the track, do most people get out of it? What is the very long term likely outcome?
1: Look, it's hard to say, but, you know, in terms of these young people that we're working with, the fact that we're diverting them away from the adult justice system. So when you see a young person involved in crime getting convicted at a young age, the last thing you want to see is them end up in the adult prison system. So I think, unfortunately, for young people that do end up in the adult system and do continue with really problematic drug and alcohol use and don't get early support, that can be a lifelong challenge for them to to, to get out of that. Um, People people still do, and you hear these wonderful stories and you see people's stories of turning their lives around, but the longer someone's enmeshed in that, the harder it is for them to extract Uh, themselves. So, again, that idea of just... Getting in early and trying to help young people when things are starting to go off the rails. Not not waiting till it's in trend. Yeah.
0: Sally, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah,
1: look, thank you so much and keep up the wonderful work and the focus on the social determinants. I love hearing that.
0: Thank you, Sally. That was Professor Sally Nathan from New South Wales. This is a podcast from Triple
4: R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support
0: R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. That's it from me, Dr Nick. Thank you, Dr Sonia. Misdiagnosis, prudence, dear, the one for Professor Sally Nathan. It... Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.